preach this passage to us today. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Again, thank you um, for your great love for us, for the love that Christ has for us, um, your church. Um, I just pray for my brother Tony as he um, preaches to us about what that means to model that um, in the way that we re uh, relate to each other um, in marriage, in the way that we look forward to relating um, to another person in marriage, um, in the way that we as a church can encourage marriage. Lord, um, I love my brother, and I thank you for him. Um, be with him today. Let your spirit um, be strong in him, that he, um, that he preach your word boldly, um, without apology, um, out of great love and awe of you, Lord. We love you. We praise you in your son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Hey, everybody. <clears throat> so last week, we talked about marriage. Um, not, not necessarily primarily between a husband and a wife, but the marriage between Christ and his church. Um, we dug into that, and we, we came to the conclusion that marriage is, in fact, not defined by cultural standards that we would set by ideas of love and romance. Um, marriage is not defined by those things, but is rather defined by the relationship between Christ and his church. What does it mean for a husband and a wife to be married? Um, to answer that question, we have to look to Christ and the church. And so the roles of the husband and the, and, and the roles of the wife are meant to model the roles of the church and the roles of Christ. And so if we think of marriage in any other way, we're going to get in trouble. And now last week we admitted that there is tons and tons of cultural baggage surrounding this question, right? It's in the news, it's in the streets, it's up on the steps of the Capitol. Um, the definition of mission, that the definition of marriage provided by the scripture is completely and utterly under attack. Completely. And even for those of us who would look at the scriptures and accept them, it might be hard to throw off some of that cultural baggage. The ideas, as we talked about last week, are not just out there, they're also in here. It's hard to grow up in a culture. It's hard to be surrounded by a culture without drinking deeply from the wells it provides. And so even our own thoughts come up. As we get into this passage, I want to repeat the thing that I said last week. It's, it's natural to come to verses like this, like these, and ask questions. It's natural. Our lives, for most of us, are not simple. The issues that we deal with in our marriage relationships from day to day, those of us that have them, are not simple. As I say that, some of you might even think of the question, you know, marriage is all about Christ and the church. It's this beautiful, glorious thing. But I'm not, I'm not married. I'm single. What does this mean for me? Um, I actually wanted to talk about singleness quite a bit today. The truth is we're not going to have time. But I do want to say this, the scripture makes it clear, it is not shameful to be single. You are no less of a person because you're not married. 
You can glorify Christ and operate as a, as a servant of God in a full and complete way outside of marriage. Some people are even called by God to celibacy, to singleness, for various reasons. And so if you're single and you're thinking, where do I fit into this? Hear me, you can glorify God where you are. Maybe you want to get married, that's a good desire, but know that you don't have to be married to glorify God. And other questions come up. As we read things we feel uncomfortable with or we disagree with, it can be really easy to shrink from the plain teaching of the word. The truth is, is that these passages are really not meant, this, this section of scripture itself is not meant to answer every single question we have about marriage and operating as husbands and wives within a marriage. And so some of the questions we bring to it, we may have to look elsewhere in scripture to answer. It's not meant to answer all of our specific questions, but it does give us a framework, a mindset from which to work, to move forward. Because it's not meant to answer all of our questions, it can be really easy to read our own ideas into it. And so again, I said we may need to look elsewhere. Uh, there's a baseline principle. If you're reading scripture and you come to a verse you don't understand or you don't know how to interpret. So you read a verse on a page and you say, I don't know what this means. The best practice for you to do to learn how to interpret that scripture is to find other scriptures in the Bible that deal with the same subject. We interpret scripture primarily by scripture before we enter our own ideas into it. And so as we interpret these verses, we're going to turn to quite a few other scriptures today, much more than I'm normally comfortable with. I, I generally like to stick just to one passage. This week we're going to be in a lot of passages because there are things that will be said today that I fear if you hear me say them, you may think that is Tony's opinion. I don't want you to believe anything about marriage because it's Tony's opinion. Do you understand me on that? The scripture is our authority. The scripture is what we look to for answers. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you scriptures to interpret the scriptures we read today. All that being said, let's get in, right into it with Ephesians 5.22. It starts out like this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Wives, God is calling you here to submit to your husbands. You may ask, what does submission mean? The word here can be literally rendered, be subject to. That is, placed under the authority of. And notice that it's repeated twice. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then again it says, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
So maybe some husbands in the room are like, yeah, wives, you should submit, right? Some of the wives in the room may feel uncomfortable. The words are clear. Wives are to submit to their own husbands. Hierarchy is not popular in our culture and in our time. The idea that anyone would have authority over anyone else is not loved in the streets. And yet whenever the word submission is used here, it's used in the same way that it's used in else, elsewhere in the scripture. Not only are Christians called, not only are our wives called to submit to her husbands, but Christians in general in Romans 13 are called to submit to the governing authorities. It is the government. In 1 Peter 2, furthermore, there Christians in general are called to submit to human institutions. That is, multi-levels of government that you may be under. Christians are also called to submit to church elders in Hebrews 13. Same word. Slaves are called to submit to their masters in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and in other places. Children are called to submit to their parents, also here in Ephesians 5. And all Christians are called to submit to God in tons of places, but notably in James 4. When the word submission is used here, there is some sense of hierarchy. The husband does have headship over his wife, even as Christ has headship over the church. But let's not get confused. Many of us hear the word submission, and the first thing that jumps into our mind is that of superiority. Oftentimes, if you hear of me, like at my work, I'm submitting to my bosses, I will call them my superiors, right? And so there's this concept of superiority that has been imported into this verse, where there are many preachers who would stand up from the pulpit and would look at the wives and say, you submit to your husband because he's your superior. Before we jump to that conclusion, let's take a look at another verse of scripture. This is Galatians 3, starting in verse 27. It should come up on the screen here. Galatians 3. Starting in verse 27. Don't have it? I'll give you time to flip there in your Bibles if you want to follow along to make sure I'm not misquoting to you. Again, Galatians 3, starting in verse 27. It says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female. For you all, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Did you see it in here? Paul is talking about the new order that the church brings in, how it changes the way that we look at the relationships between people. It says, 
that slave or free, there's no distinction as Christ looks at them. Jew or Greek, there's no distinction as Christ views them. And male and female, there's no difference as Christ views them. What that means is is that brothers, sisters in Christ, we are all together heirs of the promise of the gospel. We are all image bearers. In this sense, there are no superiors because of genetics. Do you hear what I'm saying? When the dice was rolled on your birth, and God was determining the sex as he, as he knit you together in your mother's womb, none of you got the short end of the stick. Do you hear me on that? None of you got the raw deal. There has been a tendency in the church and in the world at large to treat women as if they've gotten the raw end of Christ's or of, of, of God's decision. It's just not true. In glory, we will be standing shoulder to shoulder. We'll all be praising God with one voice. While there is true hierarchy within marriage, do not ever interpret that to mean that your brother in Christ is better than you or that your sister in Christ is somehow less. If any hint of that creeps into your mind, you are following the ideas of Satan, not of Jesus. If you embrace an idea like that, hear me, you are embracing the curse. Not salvation. In Christ, he has made us all the same. We're all heirs. And so the submission that we see here is not a submission based on quality. The wife does not look at her husband and think, I am of lower quality, therefore I better submit, because if I don't, I'll make stupid choices. Right? We've taken verses that talk about women being the weaker vessel, in a sense, and we've interpreted those to mean that women are somehow stupid that they need a man to help them think through everything. We shouldn't go there. So if submission is not based on the quality of the, of the sex, that somehow men are better than women, what is it based on? Hear this. Submission in these verse is a voluntary action of self-sacrifice. Do you get that? a voluntary action of self-sacrifice. If I go into my job and I walk into my boss's office and he tells me to do something, whenever I submit to him, it's not because he's somehow better than me. It's not because he's somehow smarter than me. It's not because he's somehow more valuable than me. 
Do you understand what I'm saying with this? Whenever we choose to submit as any human to any other human, it is not because we have less dignity or are less able. Submission here is a voluntary action of self-sacrifice. And I want to note that submission sometimes even happens outside of a clear hierarchy. You guys remember Ephesians 5, verse 21? Calls all Christians to submit to one another. There are times when we submit to another person outside of hierarchy because it's the best and wisest thing to do. And here, Paul calls wives specifically to submit voluntarily to their husbands. It says, as to the Lord. In the parallel passage in Colossians 3, it says, as is fitting to the Lord. As you do that, wives, you serve God. You submit to God. So let's talk about this in practice. This particular passage says, Wives, submit to your husbands in everything, but it doesn't say how. Can we just acknowledge that for a moment? There were no specifics. So I'm going I'm to read a passage where there's a little bit more specifics. This comes out of Titus chapter 2. Do we have that one to put up there? This one comes out of Titus chapter 2. And this is actually a passage where Paul is speaking to older women about how they should be leaders to younger women. How should they help younger women know how to live their lives? And he gives some practical application. So notice this. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Do you see the exhortation here? Older women, please teach the younger women among you these things. They need to be loving. They need to be pure. They need to be self-controlled. They need to be submissive to their own husbands. And then here's the one that is perhaps people, what does that mean? It says working at home. We can really trip over this one again. What does working at home mean? Anybody here ever seen like Leave it to Beaver? The old Lassie cartoons? Like... We have, a, we have a nice working-at-home mom in those TV shows, don't we? We know she's a working-at-home mom because she's got the apron, and she's got the oven mitts, and she's got, like, the ironing board, and she always, she's always ironing, like, her little boy's shorts. Like, that's the, that's the picture, right? In our culture, we have an image of what a stay-at-home mom is supposed to be. And it's an image that has been supported by culture for at least the last couple hundreds of ye- hundred years, especially coming out of the 50s. Some of you 
rightly, in a good sense, think, I want to be a stay-at-home wife, a stay-at-home mom. I want to be at home with my kids. I want to serve my husband by working at home. That's not a bad thing. That's a noble thing. But I want to warn us about the image we sometimes get. Guys, you should not expect your wife, as she seeks to put this passage into practice, to turn into Betty Crocker. Do you hear me on that? Like, it's not her job to just bake you cookies. So when you get home, you have a sweet treat and a peck on the cheek. That's a false image of what this verse means. I want to draw this out of another verse. This is the longest section I'm probably going to read today, but it's important because, again, we interpret Scripture by Scripture. So if a wife is to fulfill these types of things, is to be working at home, filled with love and purity and self-control, what does that mean? I'm going to read out of the famous one. is Proverbs 31. Now, to give some, give some background on this, this is Solomon's mom talking to him about the kind of wife that he should look for. All right, you hear me on this? The, this is the longest list in the Bible of what makes a worthy wife to have. Listen to the description. I'm going to read the whole thing. Listen to it and think about it, please. Proverbs 31, starting in verse 10. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works it with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it's still yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands to the, hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you will surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. So did you guys listen to all that? 
apron and oven mitts, right? That's not the picture we get. In this, yes, we do see a hard worker, but we see a hard worker who makes major financial decisions. She sees a field and she buys it. She makes major financial decisions. She manages employees. Did you hear that? She's active in the marketplace. She goes to town, into the bazaar. She has things to sell, and she has business contacts to sell them to. If your vision, men, is for your wife to be pregnant and to cook dinner for you, you have a small, small vision of her value and her capability. Do I need to say that again? If your vision of your wife is that she cooks for you and makes the kids shut up when you're stressed out, that is a small, small vision. And it's not worthy of a Christian. The Proverbs 31 wife, for all intents and purposes, doesn't just manage a household, she manages a small business. In today's culture, we would call her an entrepreneur. Have a bigger vision for your wife, guys. Lassie's mom is not the ideal. I guess Lassie's mom would be a dog, so... Lassie's owner's mom is not the ideal. All right, some of the guys in here may be thinking the opposite. Wow, that means I can put my wife to work, right? But before you expect too much, like, realize that this verse assumes a wealthy household, okay? Um, if you can afford to get servants for your wife, Maybe you can expect this level of productivity out of her. But most of you probably can't. And so let's set our sights a little lower. The principles are hardworking. And most of all, she fears the Lord. So hear me on this. Wives, submission is really submission. Whenever Paul says, submit to your husband, he means it. But within submission, there is tremendous room to flourish. Submission to your husband should not stop you from growing in the Lord and in your diligence and in your service to others. Submission to your husband should never stifle your spiritual growth. Let's switch gears over to the husbands. This starts in Ephesians 5, verse 25. Let's read this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So if you have, husband, a measure of responsibility and authority over your wife, if you are truly her head, above her in some sense in the hierarchy, this is what it looks like. Love her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Is there any coldness as we talked about last week, in Christ's love for the church, it's overwhelming with affection. There's no annoyance in Christ as he looks at the church. Sometimes there's sadness. We see it in his response to Peter and some of his stupid comments. Sometimes there's a bit of frustration as whenever we see the disciples just not get a certain, a certain uh, teaching. But there's never annoyance. There's never hostility. As we turn the pages of our Bible, the only hostility we ever see Christ portray is towards those who reject him and lead others to do the same. We see it towards the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the army arrayed against him at the end of time, but we never see his wrath poured out on the church. Husbands, love your wives. There should be no coldness in you towards her. There should be no anger in you towards her. There should be complete affection. It also says that he gave himself up for her. It's your job and your position it's your role to self-sacrifice for your wife. That means you do everything, everything in your power to keep her safe from harm. You do everything in your power to provide for her. Both physically, that means get a job, provide for your household, don't, don't just sit around. Provide for her physically, but also spiritually. You are to sacrifice yourself, not just for her physical good, but for her spiritual good. That means sometimes, if you're going to lead your household, you don't make decisions because you think it's what's best for you. You make decisions because of what's best for her. Men, you may have goals and dreams and ideas in your head of what you could be, the stages you could stand on. That stuff is worthless compared to your wife's need for you to sacrifice for her. It is better for you to be nothing in the eyes of the world Nothing in the eyes of your community but to have a wife who's well-supported physically and spiritually.
than it is to be seen as the greatest in the land and have a wife who's floundering. You lead the home. If the buck stops with you and you make decisions that you think are for your benefit, but ultimately it makes your wife crash and burn, you need to rethink your decision. We're called as husbands to help sanctify our wives as Christ does the church. We don't make her holy. We're not like the Holy Spirit or Jesus. We can't directly work on her spirit, but we can take action to help her. The example that it gives here is that Christ washes her with the water of the word. Husbands, it is your responsibility to spiritually lead your home, and that means opening up the Bible. That means reading it for yourself, devoting yourself to Christ, devoting yourself to the scriptures. And that means encouraging your wife to do the same. Some of you that may look like sitting down with her every night and opening the book. Some of you that may look like getting up early yourself and working with the kids so that your wife has a time to sit down and do her own personal devotions before you leave. Do you hear me in this? It is your responsibility as a husband to make sure that your wife is having regular time in the word. The Holy Spirit works through the word. The Holy Spirit transforms people through the word. And if your wife is starved from the word because of your poor spiritual leadership, you are harming her. It's really common, unfortunately, for men to get on their wives about the way that they look. You need to work out more. You need to eat differently. I've heard too many men complain about their wives' physical appearance. The beauty that God wants you, husband, to encourage in your wife has nothing to do with your libido. If your wife is going to be beautiful, as Christ calls you to help her become beautiful, it has nothing to do, nothing to do with you looking at her and thinking, oh, that's nice. There's nothing wrong with being attracted to your wife. But if you're spending more time helping your wife look a certain way outwardly and you never give her the time to grow spiritually, you're selfish. And you're not loving her like Christ calls you to love her. You are called to do everything for the spiritual well-being of your family. Everything. I want to take a moment here to acknowledge something out of this. We've talked about submission and leadership, what submission looks like, what leadership looks like in the home, and what I want to point out here is that a wife's submission and a husband's leadership do not equate to the woman being mousy, that is kind of, 
kind of insecure. And then the man being like the alpha. I know where we're going. I know what we're doing because I'm a man. Right? I, I exaggerate a little bit here, but we have a tendency sometimes to take these roles of submission and leadership and work gender stereotypes into them. Some of you guys have wives that are not mousy. They're not gentle. They are bold and they tell you what they think. Do not interpret that, their willingness to talk to you openly, as abusing their position in the marriage. Frankly, you need your wife to talk to you boldly sometimes because you're messed up and she's the person who probably sees it the most. And while leadership will certainly require decision-making, it does not necessarily come with machismo, the sense that you're infallible because you have the genitals that make you infallible. A strong-headed woman, I, I mean that with all sense of endearment because I'm married to one and I love it, all right? A strong-headed woman is not necessarily unsubmissive. And a gentle man, like a gentle, soft-spoken man, is not necessarily abdicating his spot as a leader. Don't import gender stereotypes into these roles. The last part that I want to talk about with men is this. We are to nourish and cherish our wives. We're to do so physically and emotionally. We are never to abuse or manipulate. If Christ nourishes and cherishes the church, he doesn't do so in a manipulative or abusive fashion. No one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it as Christ does the church. If you're abusive or manipulative, hear me on this, you need help. If any of you men are abusive or manipulative, you need help. You might as well be hurting yourself because that's what it is. If any of you wives are being abused or manipulated, you need help. Don't stay under that. Get out of the house. Talk to a trusted friend, talk to a family member, come talk to me, talk to someone. God has charged your husband with your protection. And if he's instead become an abuser, hear me this, you don't dishonor God by seeking safety. We're going to finish this up with some of the questions that that statement brings up. What happens what happens when things break? If we know our roles, if we know our responsibilities, what happens if the thing is just broken? The wife has run away from her role under Christ, and the husband has run away from his role under Christ. There's no submission, there's no love, there's animosity, there's fighting. What happens when things break? The first thing I want to say to that is remember the ideal. The ideal is Christ's relationship to the church. 
in the midst of something that feels broken, you should cling to that ideal and you should yearn for it. Wife, if your husband isn't loving you like he should, you should yearn for him to model Jesus, not just feel angry at him. Wives, I mean husbands, if your wives refuse to submit to you in the way that's proper, you shouldn't just be angry, you should weep because your marriage doesn't reflect the glory of God as it's supposed to. The reason I say this is because broken marriages are nothing to celebrate. I've talked to too, I've talked to too many husbands and wives who almost brag about the dysfunction in their marriage and yearn for the day it could end. Rather, seek to repair your marriage. The question is, what if they're not holding up their end? How can I repair my marriage? I want to read a couple verses to you. The first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here, Paul is talking to wives and uh, to husbands, not just those whose husband is a little dysfunctional, but who are unbelievers completely. It says this, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any, any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And then a similar passage in 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. This is a hard teaching. What it says is, is that if we're in a marriage and we love the Lord and we're trying to pursue him, but the other side... Our spouse is not pursuing God. They're not acting the way that they should. That if it's at all possible, if it's at all possible that we would stay in the marriage, that we would keep up the hard work of loving or submitting, that we should keep up the hope and the prayer that God would use us in our conduct Break open the hard heart of the other person. I have a friend right now that's going through a really hard time in his marriage. And uh, none of you know him, so, but I'm not going to say his name. And they're in a really precarious spot right now. And um, one of the things that impresses me so much about my friend is that we have sat over lunch and he is with tears, looked me in the eye and said, I won't let go, it's not right. I love her and she's in a dark place. I can't just let her run off into that darkness.
for all intents and purposes, he's been abandoned by his spouse. But as I speak to him, I see in him a heart that deeply desires his wife to come back to him and come back to the Lord. He has every worldly reason to be angry and furious, but God has borne in him a heart to love her. And there might be light at the end of the tunnel for them. Some things have recently started changing that shows maybe Christ is working. And I'm praying with him through tears that something will change. And we're trusting God that it will. Hear this. Marriage is still sacred even when it's messed up. Hold on to the vision of what it should be until you're forced to let go. Don't be the one to let go. Some of you might say, sometimes marriages are broken beyond repair. What then? This is the last verse I'm going to read. It's out of Matthew 19. It says, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And then they said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Hear me on this. Divorce is only allowed at all in the eyes of God because of his mercy. Because he sees us in our brokenness. God doesn't hold the victims of this type of broken marriage responsible for what's been done to them. Do you see that in the other two verses? If your wife or husband leaves you, you're not a slave. God doesn't hold that person responsible. And here he says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, he doesn't hold the spouse whose wife or husband has cheated on them and run off and rejected them. He doesn't hold them accountable for the sin of the other person. But hear this also. Sexual immorality may indeed be a cause for divorce, a right cause for divorce, but that doesn't mean it's a foregone conclusion. Throughout the scripture, we see God pursue his adulterous spouse. Throughout scripture, we see Christ pursue a messed up adulterous church. And so it's godly for us to do the same. Just because your wife or your husband has cheated on you does not mean you have to kick them to the curb. 
if it's in you at all, it's a good thing to pursue them, to not give up. A lot of these things are really close to the heart. <clears throat> they hit really close to the heart. We've all seen and know of broken marriages. We've got them in our families. We've got them in our workplace. Some of us have been a part of them. Divorce is everywhere. Selfishness is everywhere. Not just out there, but in us. So hear me on this. If we're to live up to the principles that God gives us, we need Christ. We need him. We can't do this on our own. In and of ourselves, we are sinners. And without Christ's work, first off, to die for our forgiveness and his continual work in us through the Holy Spirit to change us, we can do nothing that he requires of us. And so as we think about these words this week, I encourage you, if you come up against a wall in yourself that you feel like you can't climb over, turn to Christ. Seek him for strength. Seek out a brother and sister in Christ to help you, to remind you of the gospel. That we could move towards our spouses and not away. That we could glorify Christ. Heavenly Father, we desperately need you. <clears throat> 